Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Very excited to announce the newest podcast to the Ringer Podcast Network family. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. So this pod is gambling, 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 and more gambling. Yes, I have a gambling problem, and yeah. I want to share it with you. I want to yeah. make it your problem. And it's not just football. NHL playoffs, uh, NBA playoffs, baseball, horse racing, there's boxing, UFC. When we hit- SummerSlam. Oh, all the wrestling. When we hit July, we have a, a hot dog eating contest for Nathan's. And some surprise celebrity guests. Yeah. All right. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcast. And we're thinking about once a week, right? Yeah, let's do it. Hello. Welcome to Achievement Orient, the Ringer's video game podcast. I am Jason Concepcion, a staff writer at The Ringer, and with my co-host, who you all know is one of the greatest baseball minds and the greatest Overwatch minds and the greatest <laughs> horror video game minds mm-hmm. that we have to offer. Another yep. staff writer at The Ringer, Mr. Benjamin Lindbergh. Hello. Yeah, one Overwatch play session was enough for me to pick up all the intricacies of the game. I just immediately understood it all. (laughs) (laughs) We had a great time at the Tribeca Film Festival. We're going to talk to Robin Mm Hanegi today. She's a video game designer and the founder of Phenomena. She created a really cool video game called Journey, which involved Mm -hmm. going to a mountain, which you may have played back in the day. Uh, We talked to her back in the green room at Tribeca Film Festival, and we're talking to, after that, Mike Bassett, a.k.a. Typo, who is a controller modder for Smash Gods. And that is a fascinating conversation that there's no way to explain except that it's fascinating, and there's no way to make it sound fascinating until you listen to it. (laughs) Okay, so let's tee up Robin in the green room at Tribeca. She's developing a VR game now, so we're talking to her about the challenges and possibilities of developing for VR. Then we'll have Mike, and then we'll answer a quick question at the end, and then we'll be out of here for this week. So let's get started. So we are joined now by Robin Hunnicky. She is a game designer for Phenomena, and she has worked on games like Journey and My Sims and Boomblock. She's now working on a VR game named Luna, which is coming out later this year. Robin, hello. Hi. So we just saw your talk at Tribeca, and I wanted to ask you, you know, every time there's a new type of technology or some new innovation, first you see sort of superficial implementations of it, like motion controls come out and you see, you know, twist your arm to, (laughs) right. And what do you think the equivalent of that is in VR? What's sort of that first step where it's like, yes, this is VR, but... It's not dramatically different from what we were already doing. And what do you see as sort of the full fruition of VR where it's doing something completely different? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think if you look at a lot of the experiences that are out there now, um, they're really playing with the physicality of VR or they're looking at like the idea that they can spook you, you know. And so we're kind of doing the stuff that we know how to do easiest. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons why we're doing that. I mean, mostly it's hard to get VR games funded. You know, there's not a huge marketplace and people think like, well, um, which is one of the reasons why Luna is a PC title and a VR title. It was a PC title first, and then it became a VR title because we knew that we needed to make a PC game to make money, and then and then and a console game basically. And also, that's what we're good at making PC and console titles as a studio. And then VR just happened along, and we decided to support it. So I think you know what we've been seeing in the space is um, a lot of stuff that really takes one idea and goes as far as it can with that one idea in a short period of time, so they can get the game out there. 
and learn from it, which is exactly what you want to do as a young, you know, as a young developer or an indie developer, especially you need to get stuff out there and make sure that you know that what people like so you can keep iterating. And you don't want to spend too much time on it because you want to get to the next thing. And, you know, as you, as you keep moving forward, the market will grow. Um, Luna was made in kind of the opposite way. We started with this really core concept of building a game about the power of, you know, sort of uh, of, of people and of, of beings to transform through through difficult circumstances and really addressing this kind of idea that um, stories can tell us that it's okay to make mistakes. And in fact, it's important to make mistakes because that's how you grow. And then we moved forward through all of the design decisions about that title towards the technologies that we felt would most help us express it. So we started off on the PC, then ended up working with the Intel RealSense camera, and then eventually onto the touch controllers and hand-tracked VR. And so as we continue to work with new partners and collaborate with them on their technologies, there's just a lot of really exciting stuff happening in the space. Um, you also see that marketplace growing. So for me, it's about starting with the question of why make this game and then moving forward as opposed to how can I make something for VR? You know, it's the opposite approach. It's expensive. Um, it takes a lot of time to build games the way that we build them at Phenomena, but we feel that it's worth it. I was fascinated by something you said at your panel, which was that we need more games about sex yeah. and fucking in human interaction. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't agree more because, you know, even games which have sex scenes, which are uh, made under the best intentions, mm -hmm. just come off puerile sometimes at worst. And I was wondering if you could expound on that idea and, and talk about how, how it could be done in a way that really reaches something uh, human behind the act and not just like a representation of the act. Yeah, so I think that when I was, uh, I spoke at GDC, I think maybe three years ago now, maybe four, I was asked to be on a panel called, you know, Indie Developers Rant. Um, and as you can probably tell, I'm not a ranter. <laughs> I wasn't going to get up there and be be angry. But what I did do is I stood up on stage and I started just reading words out loud that I thought were not being expressed in games. Um, and I put them up on screen really slowly, almost like a strip tease. Um, and it was like intimacy and passion and vulnerability and lust, rejection, you know, these sorts of things. If you look at the world, right, most people are trying to find someone to have sex with, to cuddle with, <laughs> to be with, um, whatever that person looks like or whatever gender they are or however they express themselves, it doesn't really matter. Most people really love being with other people and they love sharing their experiences and their bodies with one another. And yet we as an industry and honestly, as a society, we don't spend that much time really talking about it in our media. We have romance movies, right? We have the rom-com, right? And there's always that funny sex scene or, you know, like she accidentally, you know, messes up her hair and it's funny, you know, but when you really talk about, you know, intimacy and love and the feelings that um, that we all experience when we're going through that in terms of narratives and experiences, you know, the, our best material is often books. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm really interested in is thinking about, um, yeah, what does it mean to build a game about a relationship and have it be, uh, you know, moving and have the love part in it. Like Firewatch kind of takes you right up to the yeah, line. And then, and then, you know, and so really, we you know, it's like, hmm, I wonder if they'll sequel it. I know, I know they won't. I know, I know that they won't, but, um, but, you know, I'm really, I'm enamored with Campo Santo and, um, you know, the team, uh, 
behind Gone Home, I think, because they're making stories about intimacy and relationships in a way that's really compelling. And, you know, Luna has a story that in some ways is a little bit based on this idea that you can you can do something in the moment and it'll seem like a good idea. And then it wasn't. And like, we don't really celebrate that aspect of our lives. In fact, a lot of times we hide it. We're ashamed that like, well, I started a company and it was a lot harder to do than I thought it was going to be. And some people, you know, um, really learned from my mistakes, you know, like that's true. You know, I uh, went to graduate school and spent eight years studying a PhD in computer science. And then I dropped out to make video games. You, you, can, you can bet my parents were a little confused by that one. Right. But do I regret it? Was it a mistake? Absolutely not. You know, do I regret starting Phenomena? Absolutely not. You know, we learn by making mistakes and recovering from them. And so like, that's a little nugget of, it's about kind of living and mistakes, but like, now what if I wanted to tell a story about why people get together and then break up? What if I wanted to really explore this notion of um, some things aren't meant to be? Like some relationships teach you something, but then you have to let them go. Like that's really the kind of stuff I'm interested in. I'm not saying like you have to make a game with people having actual physical sex in it, you know? That would be great too. But but what I really want to know is like, I want to see games where I can kind of explore what what a relationship could have been like from multiple angles and really get to know this person and see them from a completely different perspective and a different playthrough. You know, I really want that. I know it's hard. I know that the reason we don't do it is because AI is hard. Character design is hard. Writing is hard. But it's not that hard. One of the obstacles, I think, structural obstacles, why I was really thinking about this, it fascinated me, this question, um, is the lack of corporal body so much of our feelings of rejection and fear and vulnerability is just based on the fact that you are this person you're trapped in this body how do you bridge that when in vr you don't have a body well you could you know and um i'm thinking a lot about this right now because i'm starting to do creative on my new project um i always it takes me a really long time to make games so like i started thinking about the concepts behind luna um maybe seven years ago And it's taken me about five years to get the team together and get it all ready to go. Um, And so this game that I'm working on now, I started thinking about three or four years ago. Um, And I've been thinking a lot about representation and the body in that space. Um, I think one of the things that games are really good at doing right now is they give you like a, like especially ones with an avatar, like let's say Skyrim, Mm -hmm. does a really good job of giving you this choice. You can be like, I'm going to be a cat burglar type person, you know, like I'm a thief, you know, and like, you know, I'm going to stealth around and I'm going to get points and I'm going to like level up and you get all this feedback about your character, the way it, the way it looks, you can change it with more and more gear and you can look at its stats, but like, it's not very often that the character actually transforms, you know, and like black and white a little bit did this, you know, and fable a little bit, this idea that your character transforms over time, really interested in this idea of like, okay, what if we really took that to its logical extreme? What if the actions that you took really changed the way you looked? And what if I could tell by looking at you whether you were a dick or not, you know? Like, I would really, I would, I would really like to know. I know a lot of people out there who would really like to know. If you could just see, you know, and there's like, in some ways... It's a scary idea, but in some ways it would make the world a lot safer place. If I knew, you know, that your choices had led you to a lot of violence in your life, then I would probably avoid you, you know, unless that violence was consensual. (laughs) You're looking right at me, as you say. (laughs) Um, So one of the things you just talked about also was having to surrender some control because the player has the agency of being able to choose where the gaze goes and yet also wanting to find ways to direct that and figure out what 
is going to make someone more likely to look in a certain space. So can you tell us what you've discovered about how that process works? We're actually really iterating on that um, right now in the game. We've done a lot of work specifically with lighting and sound design, um, which I think a lot of people will say, like, oh, yeah, you know, we use lighting and sound design. But um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is the scale of the experience. So when you start off in Luna, you're outside of this terrarium. You're kind of at the scale of, like, um, you're in space and you're looking down into this experience and you see a backstory and then you go inside of it and you see more. And then you come back out and you're seeing it from the perspective of that distance again because you're solving puzzles, right? So when you're in the puzzle-solving space, you're kind of distant and you're a little bit above it. Then when you start building, we zoom you in a little bit so that you can kind of reach down into it, almost like a lazy Susan where you're getting dim sum. You can have a little bit of a, of a dim sum experience where you just like reach out with your chopsticks and then just put this thing here or grab this thing. And then when we take you down inside of it, when you're done planting the terrarium and bringing it back to life, then it's time to meet the character that lives in it. We take you down inside of it and then you're surrounded by the thing that you just made. And so what I was saying in the talk was a little bit like, it's a little bit like being in a stage that you made yourself, which gives you this really interesting feeling. On the one hand, you see it and you go, oh, I did this. But then on the other hand, you're seeing it from such an intimate perspective that it looks so much more rich and so different than it did when you were above it. And I really am interested in this idea that even though you maybe don't have a body um, and maybe you don't necessarily have complete control over the camera, when I make the world so much bigger, suddenly your camera moves are a lot smaller, right? So there's this notion that like when I'm out here, my camera move is wild, you know? But when everything is really big, my camera is actually quite slow. So there's a lot you can do with scale in addition to just lighting and sound. Um, and that's the thing that we're playing with right now as we kind of finalize the story's um, interactive scenes and think about like, okay, can you use your hands or can you not use your hands? How much of the scene is lit? There's also this notion of like, well, what's the FOV? Like literally, like how big am I compared to the space? Really, really impacts um, how directed the narrative can be. So for me um, and Luna, you're freest when you're solving puzzles. You're somewhat free when you're building the space. And then you're most contained and therefore most wrapped when you're seeing the story unfold in front of you. And I think it really does, it naturally causes you to become more still as well. When you're surrounded by something very big, your body feels small. And so you just kind of cozy up, you know, like you're not as spastic. But when you first come into the experience, everybody, especially people who've never used VR, they're really excited to be in VR. And so they're just like, what, what is it? What is it? Poke, 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 poke. Oh my gosh, so to do. So getting them through um, the beginning of the game right now is a really interesting challenge because I know that they just want to drop in and start playing, but I want to set the scene. And that's actually something that we've been going back and forth with on the dev team for a while now. So um, they're working on a bunch of stuff right now as I'm here, so I'm excited to get back and see it. But I think our biggest um, sort of revelations are going to come as we finally get the last little pieces put on the intro and understand what the value is of, of seeing a narrative from far away and then seeing it from close up. And you talked about some of the tech constraints, how because you don't know where someone's going to look, you kind of have to have everything running all the time. And it's harder to put a level of detail thing in there where you can kind of, you know, make something blander because you know that no one's looking at it. So does that lend itself to a less realistic visual style and art style? Do you see VR games skewing more toward the abstract or the cartoony or just not quite trying to mimic real life? You know, I actually think that the uh, physics in VR titles has to be really juicy and amazing. Um, but the graphics can be very abstract and um, 
minimalist or um, extremely bizarre. You know, my friend Isaac, who goes as Kabibo, he does a lot of really interesting VR work um, right now where he's kind of playing with the notion of form and substance um, and movement, making these really squishy, kind of ambiguously moving, undulating things, you know, and they have these weird sensuality to them, you know. But the physics of those objects is really interesting. And I think that really what you're going to see, in my opinion, in a lot of virtual reality experiences and probably down into augmented reality experiences is going to be this idea that when you touch something or when you move it or when you move past it, it's going to respond to you in a way that like, you know, the branches of a tree would respond if you brush past them. Like we really notice the quality of light on things and we notice the solidity of things and the way that they push back. That's how we know where we are, you know, um, and, and audio as well. You know, we're in this sort of big space right now and you can kind of hear all the people around us chatting. You didn't really listen to the people that were chatting until I said that, right? Like it's, we have a lot of ambiance and sound here that if we were in a small closet, you know, or I was really close to the microphone, you know, it'd be very different. And so, um, being able to give people this experience of moving forward and then away, you know, um, or that their sounds like far away and then they come closer, 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 they're here. And now they're moving away. You know, like this idea um, of the sort of the space of the experience is much more present than it is when you're working on a game that's going to be on a screen and then the sound's going to be coming from a television or some kind of a stereo speaker and you're going to be sitting like halfway across the room. It's just a very different kind of profile. Um, the sound design has to be very different for something like that as opposed to it's completely covering your entire field of view and you have these headphones on, you're like in this little like almost like a deprivation chamber, you know? Uh, you know, the experience is so much richer, but you can get away with so many of the systems that are already in your body that aren't your eyes. Um, and I think that's kind of ironic when you think about it, that VR gives you this opportunity to have like 4K screens like jammed up against your eyeballs. But what really influences whether or not it feels real, quote unquote, or like believable is so much more the animation and the sound design and the physics of this of the systems when they respond to your touch. Um, I can't wait until we have really great hand-tracked VR, but I still think people are going to be doing a lot of this where they're putting their fingers on their fingers to to feel something. You know, we really we really like tactile feedback. Um, so yeah, I, I think that. One of my students asked me this the other day because I was teaching them about the MDA framework, which is mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics. And I was saying, you know, I always design for feeling first. I design for the aesthetic experience of the game. And then I work backwards to the mechanics. And they said, well, you didn't mention art style. Like, why didn't you mention art style? And I was like, well, okay, I'll ask you guys a question. How many of you have bought a game because it looked pretty and then you played it and it was really boring? And they all raised their hand. You know, the way that a game looks is, is important to how it communicates, but it doesn't have to be beautiful and it doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be communicating the right things at the right time. And that's much more about the design of the aesthetic outcomes, the dynamics of the experience and the rules that support those dynamics. It's not really about whether it was drawn perfect. And, you know, I have to tell my students that because they want their, all their games to look perfect, you know, and nothing's ever perfect. So, yeah. You described the moment when you were first exposed to VR several years ago. Someone at Valve showed you, I guess, a prototype, and it sort of blew your mind, it sounded like. How did that compare to, I guess, any other first exposure to a technology you've had? Or when you first played a video game, was VR just on a completely different level in that, in that respect? 
Yeah, you know, actually, that's a really good question. When I was uh, in seventh grade, I had a friend whose brother had a Commodore 64 and in his room. And uh, we used to go in there and play Mule. And I had played video games before. Like, you know, I'd played Pitfall and, like, you know, Zelda and stuff. But um, I'd never played a game where the game was playing with me and my friend at the same time. Like, I'd never had an experience where you could be talking about what was going on in the game and then competing with each other, but also you were trying to win the game and the game was changing. And, um, that was a really mind-blowing experience for me. And I think one of the formative reasons of why I got interested in computers and programming and AI and stuff was because of playing Mule. When I saw the 4K demo at Valve and Ottman and I were talking about what it made me feel like, it really did blow my mind in a completely different way. And I, so everybody's saying this, so it sounds so cheesy to be like, well, VR, until you've seen it, you don't know. But it's really true. It's like, you know, if you were the kind of person that grew up in a household like I did, where like a lot of your meals were pretty much the same every week. You know, we had, you know, we had this kind of chicken and then we had this kind of steak and like most of the vegetables I ate came out of cans when I was a kid. The very first time that I ate a real peach and like actually bit into the peach and experienced the way like a really good peach tastes, I was totally blown away, right? Because I had eaten canned peaches my whole life and I thought that this kind of like chewy, sugary, like sort of rubbery thing was that was what peaches were. When I ate like a peach that had been picked off of a tree and given to me and then I bit into it, it was like so many different flavors, the texture of the fuzzy peach, the way it was so juicy that you could barely keep it like in your mouth. It was so, and then the hard pit at the center, all of those sensations were so new to me. I felt like I had been eating plastic before that really. And I mean, like when I see my game on the PC, I go, that's the game I designed. But when I look into Luna in a VR headset, that's a world I imagine. And like, I know that not everybody can afford to experience Luna in VR and I'm making the PC version as beautiful and as delicious and as lovely as I can, but it's a little bit like canned peaches sometimes, you know, that's how it feels to me. And I'm not saying that because I don't want people to buy the PC version because I totally want you to. Um, and I want you to share it with your kids and your friends and I want you to love it and build things in it and share them. But um, I do really think that if you can get to someone who has it in VR when it's released and see that world from the, the, the sort of completely immersive perspective, then it'll feel really magical. And it won't matter that you've already played it. You'll want to experience it again. I really do think that because it's delightful to be able to see this thing come to life in front of you. It's just, a, I, I don't know how else to describe it other than to say that I think that VR can be really, really delightful. The thing that really excites me about Luna is it seems to get it like an idea of the, the best hope of VR, which is this kind of like radical empathy, like a possibility for just being, to radically empathize with another person or other kind of energy. But do you ever, I mean, how much thought do you give to what people will do with VR that is potentially negative? I mean, I, I, I'm a really sensitive person, and I think lately especially, I've just been really overwhelmed by the amount of um, anger and violence and distrust, um, frustration, and um, down-in-the-dumps kind of suffering feelings that everyone's been having. And um, especially when you, when you look at social media right now, we're really focusing on the things that are giving us anxiety and stress, and we're repeating them. We repeat them to each other, and then that echoes, and it echoes, and it echoes. And, like, you know, there's this concept, the Buddhist concept of shampa, which is, like, you know, seeds of being hooked, bad thoughts, bad actions, you know, um, difficulties. And when you sow shampa, it 
produces more shanpa. Like everybody that is angry, that tweets angry, makes more angry people. <laughs> and it doesn't just like go out into the universe and not go anywhere. It goes out into the universe and it gets amplified and retweeted and, and reposted. And I, I'm really sensitive to this idea that we all need to be trying our best to believe that everyone is trying their best and to believe that everybody is a good human being. And one of the ways we can do that in art is by to make, making art that focuses on that. You know, one of the ways we can, do, we can put ice over the wounds and like cool the conversations and build trust is to be open and trusting to everybody and to build experiences that put people in an open and trusting place. And Luna is deliberately meditational. It's deliberately calming. It's deliberately creative and musical in a way that allows you to just let go of some of that stress. I really think that people need that right now. And they, they shouldn't have to have a $3,000 VR rig to experience it, you know? It's important. So I am trying very hard to build something that does that. Well, we know that you've had to do a lot of talking today, so we will let you go. We appreciate it. You can find Robin on Twitter at Haneke. You can find out more about Phenomena at phenomena.com. And the game, again, is Luna coming later this year. Thank you, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we'll be right back with Mike Bassett to talk about Super Smash Brothers Melee and controller modifications. Building on 12 years of critically acclaimed gameplay, Dawn of War is back to redefine real-time strategy gaming and offer the most fun you can have with Warhammer 40,000. By combining the epic scale of the first Dawn of War with the customization and elite heroes of Dawn of War 2, Relic redefines the genre and brings the franchise into the modern era. The result is a best-in-class real-time strategy game that offers the rich strategic experience, stunning visuals, and catastrophic surprises that players have come to expect. Plus, Dawn of War 3 lets you take control of the biggest characters in Dawn of War history, command massive armies and blistering galactic warfare and tip the battle's balance in your favor. You can buy Dawn of War 3 today at dawnofwar.com. That's dawnofwar.com. And if you're ready to save money and play more games, let me introduce you to our other sponsor, Gamefly. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, you can pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. Gamefly is the leading video game rental service with over 9,000 titles to choose from. Try your favorite games and movies before you buy them and keep the games as long as you want. You'll never have to worry about late fees. You can cancel at any time. So go to Gamefly.com AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time. You can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com slash AO. So go sign up and start playing all your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. So last weekend, one of the so-called five smash gods of Melee, Adam Armada Lindgren, withdrew from the DreamHack Austin tournament due to a controller that wasn't functioning properly, or maybe it would be more accurate to say malfunctioning properly. And I wondered what it could be about a controller that would cause someone to withdraw from a tournament. I wanted to know more about modding controllers and how important controllers can be at high levels of competition. And so we are bringing on someone now who has modded controllers for some very high level Smash players. He is a a co-owner of Mute City Customs, which is a controller and console modding company, and he's expert on this subject. So his name is Mike Bassett. He goes by Typo as his handle. Hi, Mike. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well. So how did you get into the controller modding scene? Yeah, the short answer is uh, I just started doing it, really. I was always interested in whenever something would happen with my controller, I would always want to fix it before trying to buy another one. And mm-hmm. so I kind of just 
looked up and I saw a lot of information out there that is free and available for anybody who's interested in kind of opening up the controllers and getting into the nitty gritty of everything. And so after I got into doing that for myself, I would be going to tournaments in the local scene and people would say, oh, well, can you help out with my controller? And so I started doing them for friends and about, I would say, it was in the summer of 2016, I started doing them at uh, larger regional tournaments within New Jersey, which is where I'm from. But really, it kind of first took off when I went to Shine 2016 in Boston. I didn't I didn't sign up for like a vendor spot or anything like that. I just showed up and I found a table at the venue, which is thankfully very large, and just started doing controller modding stuff and just you know helping people with any of the issues that they had. Uh, and then ever since then, it's just basically been a cycle of going to these you know large big profile events and doing the the mods for customers whether they be amateurs or pros or just people that want to step up their game mm -hmm. and uh, now I do now I do things through mail order queue as well and uh, as you mentioned I'm, I've teamed up with um, my friend to form mute city Customs. so that's basically essentially how I, how I got the start to where I am now Mm -hmm. So yeah, when I play Smash, I still play Smash 64 and there's always like one controller that's good and the others are all terrible because controllers <laughs> are all like 20 years old and the joysticks are sticky and so there's always like a fight for the good controller. So I guess in your case, you would just open it up and fix it. I mean, is yeah. there a limit to the repairs that can be done in in that area like are there controllers that are just broken beyond repair i mean obviously not you know shattered because someone rage quit and and threw it across the room but that normal wear and tear can that always be repaired yeah i mean it's it's kind of in some ways sometimes it's a little bit like cars in that sometimes there's a solution that could be fixed but it would involve a lot of, you know, like taking out a stick box and installing a new stick box in it. And it's in some scenarios, it might be worth it. But most of the time, someone comes to me with a controller that's just like totally like loose and you like the control stick like wobbles around if you tilt it the wrong way. Like yeah. in those situations, like 90% of the time, I just tell people, like, look, just, you know, get yourself a good controller and and see how it breaks in. But yeah, I mean, most of the time, there are it's frustrating sometimes when people when people say a controller is trash and then I take a look at it and I say, well, I, I can fix these two little things. And then all of a sudden it's better than what you might have thought. Uh, and then the other wrinkle to that is that frequently uh, getting a new, a brand new controller, they might not necessarily uh, perform as well as some of the more heavily used ones, which I'll probably get to in a little bit, I think. What are some of the popular mods that you do for people? Uh, that's actually a pretty good question. So the the by far the most popular ones that I do are shield drop notches and snapback reduction. So a shield drop notches, they're the a shield drop, I don't know if, if there are people that aren't too familiar with Smash, but essentially if you're if you're standing on a platform and you're shielding, it's kind of not the best situation to be in as far as as far as like competitive play is concerned, because it's very easy to get hit or just taken advantage of because of the pressure. And a shield drop allows you to simply drop through the platform without having to let go of your shield, without having to put yourself into pretty much any lag. And essentially, while there are more than one way of doing a shield drop, we we in the community found that if you hold the control stick all the way to the right and then you hit it down at a very specific angle, you can get the shield drop to work every single time consistently without having to worry about accidentally getting like a spot dodge or basically screwing something up to make it so that you lose your positional advantage. But the problem is that in order to do that, you have to very slightly and very carefully adjust the octagon gate that's around the control stick. 
So hmm. uh, the shield drop mod entails me essentially just taking the controller apart and using a file and using um, a measuring software built into a, a custom ISO to basically say, okay, well, like this is where I need to kind of adjust it so that it'll work. It's different for every controller, specifically different for every stick box. So uh, it's a fairly personalized thing that has to be done, has to be done very carefully with a lot of expertise. The snapback reduction is essentially, is a lot, is a lot more, uh, a lot simpler than that. It's essentially to make sure that if you're doing an aerial neutral B input, that it goes the way that you want it to. So a lot of times players will want to jump backwards while shooting, for instance, a laser forward. And so if your controller snapbacks too far to neutral after you've released it, you could accidentally shoot the laser the wrong way. And it's really it's really just a killer for competitive play. So in that case, there is a, um, it involves some soldering, but it's a very basic soldering operation to make sure that that works uh, properly and everything else essentially there's a, a, a lot of customizations that i can do with the triggers and with the buttons and stuff like that but everything else is essentially just preference based are the mods you do do they involve any automation like for instance the, the first um my first experience with controller modding was in halo was like in some of the there was button glitches that you could do that canceled animations that allowed players to reload faster or do certain things and some modders came out with mods that basically made it so you could hit that animation cancel glitch every time you just you pushed a button. Is it mm -hmm. like that or is it uh, you still have to perform the action, but it's just a lot more accurate? Yeah, and that's actually a really good distinction to make. It's it's not like that because I, from what I can tell from your description, I'm admittedly not too much into um, into Halo or any of the uh, okay. any of the other Xbox or PlayStation. But it's, that's the that's fine. The, the principle is essentially what I'm thinking of is a macro. For instance, there's a bunch of like two frame inputs in Melee where like if you could design a button to do like to do a certain sequence of button presses, it would be crazy, crazy good, uh, and that would be universally banned from of course any, yeah. any tournament yeah so the smash community when it comes to what's too far is very a little stick in the muddy about things we kind of got lucky that the gamecube controller is actually pretty close to being able to perform as well as we want it to consider especially when you consider that nintendo is not exactly the most liberal about their third-party licensing and stuff like that like for instance with with things like halo and with counter-strike you know you know there's a lot of controller companies that make these controllers and they're allowed to essentially make something that's better for performance with permission from the creators of the game or the creators of the console because they know that ultimately speaking it's better for business overall but in, in this case the modifications that we make are far more slight i would say and are there inspections by tournament authorities or something? Is there any way to to tell whether a controller is in line with regulations? Yeah, actually, no. <laughs> it's funny, you know. It ultimately enforceability has been kind of a soft spot in the meta at this point. For instance, even with the shield drop notches that I do now, I'm taking a, a metal file to these controllers, right? So you'd yeah. think it would be just as easy to check to see if it had a shield drop notch. Uh, of course, they are legal, but um, if you want to see if someone had it done, you, you know, you'd think it'd just be easy. Just oh, just look at their controller. But it's actually not really that simple because the notches that I that I do, they're not. You don't. You're not adding a new notch into the controller. It's just you're only slightly adjusting it. So it's not. It, it doesn't even look like that. So no, there really aren't actually any inspections. But thankfully, and it's kind of weird that this is a thankful that I'm thankful for this. But thankfully, the hacking meta has not really progressed enough for people to be sophisticated enough to get away with it and to my knowledge the things that i know would be helpful to have kind of soft cheats with those issues 
are essentially there's no top players that could possibly be using those controllers at this point from my estimation and sure maybe there are some circumstances of lower level players getting away with it in their own community but they typically don't if you lack the effort to or if you lack the passion to learn the techniques for yourself and you want to cheat the chances are you don't you don't have the passion to actually study your opponents and try to like get good as they say Mm-hmm. And is Smash unusual in its pursuit of controller advantages, or is it completely typical and it's the same for every fighting game, if not other competitive genres too? Smash is very unusual, and it's something that I haven't brought up to this point. And this is actually this is a direct tie into one of the reasons why uh, Armada wasn't able to uh, enter singles at DreamHack. So the issue with specifically Melee and GameCube controllers, aside from the fact that Nintendo doesn't allow us to fiddle around with the design uh, from a manufacturing standpoint, that is the issue is that so if you're in a standing, I'm not going to I'm trying to I'm going to try to keep this not very um, like frame data. y, But basically, if you're in a standing position during a game and you want to dash backwards, most controllers, I would say probably 70 to 90 percent, if I would give a general guesstimate. Most controllers are not able to do that dash backwards from a standing position very consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean is that if you have a successful dash backwards, it takes you one frame to turn around. If you have an unsuccessful dash back, it will take you anywhere from five to nine frames to turn around, depending on uh, your character and how, how fast or slow they are. So if you're wasting four frames trying to dash backwards. Now, obviously, in casual and in beginner competitive play, not a huge deal. Not many tournaments that's lost uh, over it. But as far as the competitive aspect is concerned, that difference is actually very crucial. Very, very crucial. And so that's one of the biggest like desirable factors about a good controller is that it can dash backwards uh, really well. Problem mm-hmm. is that that phenomenon, it is only, a controller can only be good at dashing backwards if it is technically speaking malfunctioning, mm. uh, which is very odd because under most circumstances you'd think, well, you know, control is working really well. It must be, you know, it must be functioning properly. But in this case, what you're looking for is a controller that is essentially malfunctioning in the way that you want it, but not in the way that you don't. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really a very uh, frustrating process to try to find these controllers and. You know, you, you wouldn't believe the amount of people who have been asking me, like, can you fix this? Can you please, please fix this? But it's something that makes a good controller very rare. And that's, that's something that's very unique about the Smash, uh, especially in the Melee community. And Smash tournaments are like a constellation of various independent entities. How do tournaments determine what is the line of acceptable modding and what is beyond that? Is mostly the, a, a community thing, like an ad hoc thing? Or is there, an, is there an actual group within each tournament that says, no, you can't do this or you can't do that? Well, I mean, on an independent basis, it's basically up to the TOs, the tournament organizers, to um, present a rule set that can accommodate for various things. But overall, it hasn't really been an issue just because like for whatever reason, there hasn't actually been a lot of cheating going on, which is kind of odd. You'd think that, you know, if you look at a lot of other esports, there is a lot of accusations of cheating or malintentioned play. But for whatever reason, in Melee and with Smash in general, people just don't, I, I don't think people have that intent as much. 
And as I said, you know, a lot, the people that do have that intent typically don't go very far within the community anyway. Mm -hmm. So what kind of advantage are we talking about here at the highest level? Maybe this doesn't matter for casual play, mm -hmm. but if Armada is dropping out of a tournament because of the lack of controller, then obviously he feels that it's a significant advantage. So is there any way to quantify what the difference is between having one of these correctly malfunctioning controllers or not? Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you an example. So Armada typically, not all the time, but typically he plays Peach. Um, and then a lot of times during the top eights, he'll switch to Fox. But when he plays Mango, for instance, he's almost always going to play Peach for most of the set, especially for when he, when he plays on FD, on Final Destination, because it's a completely flat uh, stage. There are no platforms. And Peach uh, has a chain grab. I'm not sure about the percentages, but essentially, if the Fox is at mid percent and a Peach gets a grab, theoretically speaking, Peach can chain grab Fox until death. And mm. that's a stock. So it, it's so it's so changing for the matchup in this scenario that in the past, every time that Armada has taken Mango to Final Destination, whereas normally Mango would be playing Fox or Falco against him, it, it works on both Fox and Falco. Usually when, when Armada plays FD, Mango just says, you know what, I, I'm just going to throw the game and he, he'll pick a different character just so that he won't get chain grabbed. So now the problem is that if you are trying to do a chain grab with Peach and the player uses DI so that he gets hit behind you, that means now in order to continue the chain grab, you have to hit your, your, your dash backwards out of the uh, throw animation, which mm -hmm. essentially, if you consider that to be not a consistent option for yourself, like if you're using a controller that doesn't have a good dash back, that means that Armada almost entirely gives up the advantage of going to that stage. So that's one game per set that Armada would probably have to give up. And hmm. uh, that's just one example of it. The other thing that makes it a little bit more confusing and, and kind of, there are a lot of people who say that dashback isn't like a huge problem. And, you know, to a certain degree, they're kind of right. But the thing is that the, some of the ways that you can get around a controller that has a bad dashback involve a little bit more prep time in your technique. And hmm. the reason why it's very important, at least in my estimation, that Armada needs a controller with good dashback is that, he loves to put himself in situations where he doesn't have to make a read on the opponent on what they're going to do. He loves to put himself in a situation where he can react to everything that they can do. And sometimes that reaction has to involve a dash backwards. Hmm. And the thumb movement that's required is a lot easier if you just have to kind of flick the stick instead of having to really hit it very hard to make sure that you get your dash back. That's the kind of simplified version of it. But yeah, I would say the two biggest scenarios would be in chain grab scenarios. Uh, for instance, that that uh, example of chain grab also it also happens in the fox dittos or the fox mirror matches where if you have two foxes on final destination, pretty much whoever gets the grab, theoretically speaking, has a chain grab from zero to almost kill percent. But again, you have to be able to hit your your dash backwards uh, consistently. So it's mm -hmm. that, and then it's also in situations where you need a reaction and you don't have necessarily the time to prep with something that will help you get around the bad dashback. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Mango, who is one of the other five gods of melee, and you have modded controllers for him and for mm -hmm. other top level players. So. How did you get to the point where those people would be coming to you for help? Was it just word of mouth? Was it luck that you got your controller in front of one person who was able to promote it to other people? And is there more pressure working on a controller for someone who is at that elite level? Yeah, well, I mean, the last part of it I can answer pretty simply. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it it's a little bit. I mean, it's 
the thing is that when I when I make a controller for somebody, it's not just the product. It's also okay. Well, if it's not if it's not working well down the line, it's my responsibility to come help and fix it. But uh, mm -hmm. as far as as far as like getting my controller in his hands, I mean, I, I guess I would say that the most important thing was that I had done I had done work for both uh, S2J and Lucky in the past. S2J is as far he was actually one of my my earliest top level clients who I think I probably I think I did a controller for him in August, and then Lucky I did a controller for him at Big House in October, and you know those are some of Mango's best friends, not even just his practice partners like they are they hang out with him on the daily uh and and a couple i want to say like a week or two before i finished my controller for mango i sold a controller to to alex 19 who's not necessarily the, the highest level player but he is from the same area as as mango and lucky and and uh s2j you know he really liked the controller and so it kind of influenced it to the point where I think one time I was in a stream chat, I was in somebody else's stream chat and Mango happened to be in the chat and he said, yo, Typo, uh, are you selling controllers? And at that point I said, all right, well, I don't necessarily need a formal contract to begin work, but if I make him a controller and it's good, I feel like he's going to take it. So I, I kind of started hunting around for a circuit board. It took me about a month to find the right one that was just had the right characteristics that I wanted. And mm -hmm. I... I knew that if I was going to have him play it, he was going to have to have something that stood out about it. So I essentially kind of tried to deck it out with as much Cloud9 paraphernalia as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of it. It's essentially just I took I, I made a little custom back shell where I took a transparent um, clear back and I tinted it blue so that it's like Cloud9 C9 Mango. So it, it, it came out really well. And um, I think that overall, though, the, the most important thing about about the getting a controller in front of him was just the connections that that I made over time. Hmm. So when I listen to you describe making these things, it sounds like you're building a lightsaber or like Valyrian steel or like at least breaking <laughs> in a, a baseball glove or something. It's like, I'm wondering if there is that kind of relationship between the player who is wielding the controller and the controller, if it's this customized thing that is if not unique, at least extremely uncommon, is there almost a bond between the controller and the player that forms where even if you have one that is almost identical, maybe there's even like a psychological advantage to having this one specific one that you know that you've won with before? Yeah, it's probably more psychological. I don't, yeah, obviously like, you know, it, sometimes it's a matter of the player getting used to the controller which is something that people don't typically talk about enough, if you ask me. But um, mm -hmm. just because like, hey, I'm a controller nerd, but I also still believe that people need to perform. But with, with Mango, I, I specifically had to look for a controller that would function normally because he's the type of person that I, like I know that he's the type of person who's okay with a controller that doesn't have the best stats. He just wants it to function normally. And the problem is that, as I was saying before, when, when, you know, when you have a controller that's malfunctioning, so to speak, uh, as far as getting the correct dashback characteristics, sometimes that, that slight malfunction can cause other quirks with the mechanics. Like you might have problems dashing backwards out of crouch animation. And there's a couple other things. There's some weird ledge mechanics that can sometimes occur. So I was really hunting, hunting for a controller that not only would it give him the good dashback, it would also kind of just function normally. Whereas most players, especially 
players are on that caliber, they value Dashback so highly that if you were to give them a controller that's like, oh, well, you don't have to do this a certain slightly different way, most of them say, right, you know what, that's no problem, I can adjust. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things I was wondering about and other people were wondering about when Armada dropped out, do they have backups? Do people travel with two or three controllers that they're okay with using? Is there always one main one that is clearly the preference? Or is this the case with a lot of pros that if they're controller breaks or, or something goes wrong, they can't play on. Yeah, I, honestly, it, it doesn't happen frequently enough, I'll tell you that. The only player that I know that actually has like a sufficient amount of backup controllers is Mewtwo King. I mean, he has way more than sufficient. Um, but <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, Mewtwo King, you know, he's, he's also extraordinarily uh, picky about his controllers to the point where he won't, he, he won't even be able to practice on a controller that doesn't have good dashback because it's so foreign to him. And the reason why he has a lot of controllers is because every time he would go to a tournament on like day one, when he doesn't really have to play like crazy intense matches, he would at one point sit down and play friendlies with like probably 80, 80 different people, just like people line up to come play with him, right? They want to play a friendly with Mewtwo King. And he would, every time he would play with somebody, if they, if they were playing a controller, he thought might be interesting to check out. He would ask them if he could try it. And if he liked it, he would offer to buy it. And honestly, in that situation, there are a lot of people who would just straight up give it to him just because like, wow, Mitsu King lost my controller. You know, uh, so he's <laughs> he, he's done that for a little while. And he has at least, I want to say, 20 controllers that have really good dashback. And just for reference, I don't know of any top players that have more than two at this point. Yeah, so that's my last question. I guess, what's the future hold? Because... Are these controllers still being manufactured in any way, or are you cannibalizing old controllers to get parts or to make new ones? I guess, is there an expiration date on having the type of controllers that fit all of these rare specifications that you're looking for? Yeah, that's a good question. There's essentially two answers to it. The first answer is for the typical questions, because like I said, a vast majority of players are playing on controllers without you know, these crazy specific uh, characteristics. So. Yeah. Interestingly enough, in the last few weeks, we've been actually having a serious problem getting new controllers because what happened was they were making the ones uh, when the GameCube was out and then when the Wii came out, they were still it was still backwards compatible. So they were still making controllers. And then when Smash 4 came out, they came out with a new model where instead of having Nintendo GameCube on the front, it had a, um, a Smash symbol with like little flames. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's the one that you, you see the most common out there. They have a white version and a black version. And they're actually, these particular ones, this latest model, have a fairly bad reputation. They can be fixed up pretty well, but they do typically need a little bit more fixing up than most controllers. But even those ones, the brand new ones, which I personally find fairly undesirable for finding good dashback or other, other amazing good characteristics, uh, even those ones have actually gone out of production as far as we can tell. So the future as far as like sourcing good controllers is a little up in the air right now. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the good news is that because the GameCube controller is so popular, there are a lot of people who have them. And so there's usually a, a fairly steady supply of, of controllers on, for instance, on eBay or Amazon, et cetera. Now, the question about the part of the question for dashback is a little bit more complicated because the thing about the oddity, it's a kind of like a, it's a malfunction in the potentiometers that measure the stick box movements. And the thing about that phenomenon is that we don't actually know exactly what causes it. We're not a hundred percent sure. The two existence factors that I've kind of noticed over time are one, you're looking for a controller that has been 
around for a while. So you're looking for something that's a little bit on the old side, manufactured a little while ago. And then mm -hmm. two, the other thing is something that's been moderately to heavily used, which is kind of complicated because, you know, ideally my ideal scenario for looking for a controller that's been, that's got good dashback would be to have somebody who's had a controller for probably up to like four years, but maybe they play it like twice a week, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the issue that you have is that if, even if you have a good, if, even if you have a new controller, if you take a new controller and you start playing melee on it, like three hours a day, for like two years, it's going to mm -hmm. get so loose and worn out that by the time it develops good dashback, you could forget about it. You won't even be able to use it. So in this scenario right now, the controllers that are most likely to have quality characteristics are ones that were manufactured starting in 2008 and onwards. They're white controllers with um, just the regular Nintendo GameCube uh, lettering. But before those controllers came to be known as the best ones, they were actually kind of not regarded very well. People said, ah, oh, these controllers are crap. They're just, you know, they're so like clunky, et cetera, et cetera. And, and during that time period, everyone was like, oh, you got to check out the silver ones. This is silver ones are the best, right? <laughs> but the thing is, at that time, a lot of the silver ones were between like two to four years old and they had been used possibly by casual gamers or something like that. And so they're they met some of the criteria that in, in my, at least from my experience is makes it more likely for them to develop good dashback. So my thought is that from the perspective of a controller, that's like really, really good. I, I think that there's a lot more life left to it, but I would say that the chances of melee outlasting the controllers is probably like 20% <laughs> overall. Uh, you mentioned the potentiometers in some of these controllers. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was, Back when I used to play music, there were these like guitar stomp boxes that were really sought after because they had this special chip in it, a JRC chip, Japanese mm -hmm. chip that back in the day, people would say, oh, these are a dime a dozen. They, they just fall out of the factory. And mm -hmm. then when they change the number for whatever reason, and all of a sudden people are telling you, oh, I can, I can hear the difference, you know? So is there a difference in some of the, the potentiometer and some of the parts and the, the older and some of those old controllers where you can actually feel a characteristic coming from those parts or no? Or is that just psychological? No, there is a little slight difference. So uh, generally speaking, there are three, as far as physical construction of the stick box, there are three generations. The first generation is universally known to be really awful, which is they are they have a metal a metal casing around the stick box. The plastic is is kind of some of it's some of it's black, some of it's white. That's kind of like how, that's how you tell whether or not it's it's that one. And it just has a really bad feel to it. It's like grainy. It doesn't move very well. Those ones are, but those ones are from like 2001. So those are very very old controllers. And then after that, they started making them still with a metal casing, but a lot better construction. And those move pretty well. And but now recently they're making the stick boxes out of all plastic, which the 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 all plastic ones and the ones in the middle with metal casing but still well like well constructed those ones are they've essentially play the same there's a very slight difference in feel but a lot of people probably wouldn't even recognize it as far as i'm aware there aren't too many differences in the actual characteristics of them that i don't think that that either a, a controller with a metal casing stick box or the plastic casing stick box is really gonna be any better for developing something like dashback mostly because the potentiometers actually read the stick box movements from around 2003 onwards, the potentiometers have all been completely standard. All right. Well, if you're ever in New York, please let me know and please come over to my apartment and fix all of my N64 joysticks because they need some serious help. <laughs> you can 
Find Mike on Twitter at HRC Typo. You can find Mute City Customs on Twitter at Mute City Customs or also at MuteCityCustoms.com. And thank you for explaining this. It was as fascinating as I had hoped. Yeah, thank you. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the chance to talk about this stuff. Okay, so we are still getting Twitter questions to our Twitter yes. account for the show at Achievement Pod. We want to answer one of those at the end of every show. So please keep those coming. I also want to try to create a little bit of a community around the show. So I have created a Facebook group, which has been helpful for one of my other podcasts. So if you want to join, you go to facebook.com slash groups slash achievement oriented, and anyone can join. You can talk about games in there, talk about the show, suggest topics or guests. So we'll be in there and listening to your feedback. So again, facebook.com slash groups slash achievement oriented. And this week's quick Twitter question comes from Fiak in Dublin, and he says, Hey guys, after the relative flops of the recent Rock Band and Guitar Hero reboots, is there a future for rhythm-based peripheral games? And I have to hope that there is, because I had as much fun playing the original Rock Band and yeah. Rock Band 2 as, as just about any game I've ever played. If you could get together with friends in the right situation. I was in college at the time, so it was perfect. So I hope there's a future. And I will say that maybe VR is that future. Maybe VR is the future for everything, but maybe VR is the future <laughs> for Rock Band and Guitar Hero. Because I was reading last month, Kirk Hamilton wrote about Rock Band VR, which you might not know existed if you don't have an <laughs> Oculus because it's an exclusive to the Oculus Rift. And so not many people have both an Oculus and a Rock Band controller and can play this game. But Kirk made it sound like a ton of fun just because you feel like you're on the stage. It's more of an improvisational game or there's more room for sort yeah. of putting your own spin on the song instead of just following the strict note chart, although you have the option to do that too. So it sounded a lot of fun. Again, we are still lacking VR, but if we weren't, I'd totally be playing Rock Band VR. We'd love to test VR if sure anybody would. out there knows what I'm what I'm getting at. You know, I think um, I think to me, I, I also hope it comes back. My my friends from college, the Slip, were in the original rock band with their song "Even Rats," uh -huh. and then I had a friend, Jason Booth, who was involved in the development. So I, I hope it comes back. I th rhythm games are still, you know, out there. Crypto the Necrodancer. I don't know if you ever played that. A couple years back, an uh, indie game that was like combined roguelike and rhythm game mechanics mm -hmm. in a really cool way. Like mm -hmm. games like that are, are still very addicting on mobile, but I think there's got to be a way to bring down the cost of the peripherals as part of the problem. Right. And Thumper was a, a popular yeah. PSVR game. So that is out there. The peripherals, I guess, is a separate question. I think the yeah. Oculus has a dongle that attaches to your guitar so you can do lots of guitar moves <laughs> and stuff and have them reflected yeah. in VR. So sure. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. All right. So we can wrap up there. We will talk to you all on Twitter, on Facebook, and on the podcast next week. Thanks, Jason. Thanks.
weekend. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, you can pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. So go to Gamefly.com slash AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time. You can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com slash AO. So go sign up and start playing all of your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. And remember, Dawn of War is back to redefine real-time strategy gaming and offer the most fun you can have with Warhammer 40,000. Building on 12 years of critically acclaimed gameplay, Dawn of War 3 offers the rich strategic experience, stunning visuals, and catastrophic surprises that players have come to expect. So go get Dawn of War 3 today at dawnofwar.com. Again, that's dawnofwar.com. 